0: If you guys have not seen episodes one through four of the series yet, just give us a pause and take a look. This season is just, ugh, oh, it is absolutely beautiful. And this round table is going to have a number of spoilers from the first quarter of the season. So if you haven't seen it yet, pause, go take a look and then come back and meet us. Welcome back to the For All Mankind podcast. I am Chris Marshall, your host. And today I am super excited because we're doing something completely different than we've done thus far. Today we are doing a roundtable chat with some of my favorite folks from the show. We have got Sonia Walger, Matt Walpert, And Meryl Davis, hi, guys. Hi, hi, hi. Thank you so much for being here. Do you guys want to just take a moment to introduce yourselves so our audience knows who you are, who you play, what your role is in this whole world? Sonia, you're up first.
1: Hi, I'm Sonia Walger. I play the inimitable Molly Cobb in the show. Amazing. I'm Meryl Davis. I play Ed
2: Baldwin. Uh, It's amazing what (laughs) prosthetics can do. Um, But no, I'm a... I'm one of the executive producers.
3: Great, great. I'm Matt Wolpert. I'm one of the creators and executive producers of the show and uh, very excited to be here. Oh, you guys are so cute. This
0: is the first time I've seen you guys and your lovely, shining, beautiful faces in the new year. This is crazy. I mean, how are you all feeling? Pretty good.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, hanging in there with a five and a seven-year-old in total lockdown. Uh, yeah, it's real over here. Yeah, I mean, it's wild. I
0: remember when we were nearly done with episode eight and we were heading into nine and ten and all of this craziness began and we thought, oh, we'll be back in three weeks, we'll be back in, in four weeks, and then here we are, you know, a year later still doing this thing. So this is just, this is absolutely insane. Meryl, how have you been managing this crazy quarantine life?
2: Honestly, I'm such a homebody. <laughs> this is kind of normal <laughs> for me, so it's not that unusual. It gives me an excuse to stay home, but... Uh, you know, it's been crazy. Um, we have another production going right now, and, and obviously For All Mankind came back briefly to finish 9 and 10. And, you know, the new protocols are tough, but I'm very proud of our production for doing everything they could to keep everyone safe and um you know, we're able to finish those off. And I'm very hopeful that, uh, you know, we might be able to start shooting three
0: soon. So, God willing. I've got a little peanut butter ice cream weight. <laughs> May want to trim down, but I'm ready. I'm stoked. Some pandemic pounds. Just a little. Just a little. But we can fix it in post. Right, guys? We can fix it in of post. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, here's a quick refresher. So, it's 1983 which is 10 years since we last saw the characters in For All Mankind. And yet so much has changed. Season two kicks off with a crazy intense solar radiation event on the moon, which threatens the lives of all of the astronauts that are stationed on the Jamestown base, including Ellen Wilson and Molly Cobb. Now, in true Molly fashion, she braves the solar storm and risks her life to bring a fellow astronaut back to safety. However, due to the dangerous amounts of radiation she intakes, Molly is now sent home to Earth to recover. Meanwhile, our High Bob gang members, that's Danny, that's Gordo, that's Ed, have been Earthside for nearly a decade and are trying to find their way back into space. But not before each of them has to face some personal demons. Oh, and uh, did I mention that the next time any one of them finds themselves in space, there very well may be guns on the moon? Okay, let's dive in. So, Matt... Our audience has found our lovely gang, and now it's 1983. So we've jumped nine years, 10 years. Talk to me about the process of how you guys decide 10 years over five years. Uh, What does that process look like for you guys?
3: In the very beginning of our discussion about what this show should look like, uh, which really looked like Ben and I and Ron and Meryl sitting at Jerry's Deli in Studio City (laughs) and uh, um, just talking ad nauseum about all the different permutations of what this might look like, we realized that to really get a sense of how big the changes would be, you know, from this one butterfly effect moment of the Soviets beating us to the moon, we really needed to jump a lot of time to see the scope of the change. And the idea came about what if each season was a different decade? So that was kind of the touchstone we were using that would move us forward in a big way each season. Uh, And so it was a real challenge to figure out what the world would look like, how it would be different, how it would be the same, and also how these characters' lives were different. You know, we're jumping over such huge swaths of their lives and seeing who's the same, who's different was a real fun exploration in the beginning of the process.
0: Yeah. So tell me more about this butterfly effect concept because I'm familiar with it, but I don't know if everybody else knows. Like, what exactly does that mean?
3: Well, it's based on this idea that if a butterfly flaps its wings on one side of the world, the sort of snowball effect of that is that uh, it would impact things on the other side of the world eventually. And if it flaps its wings in a different direction, things on the other side of the world would eventually be different than they would have been if it had done things the way it normally would have. And so I think a great example is. In the very first episode of season one, there's this small offhanded reference in a news report that Ted Kennedy cancels his party at Chappaquiddick Island. Mm -hmm. That leads to him not getting in the car crash and Mary Jo Kopechny not being killed, which killed his political career. And in our show, Ted Kennedy winds up being a viable political force still and becoming president in 1972. So how does that then impact going forward in season 2 we learn that Reagan was elected in 1976 as opposed to 1980 and he still is a two term president but it's just moved 4 years earlier and the sort of the the world of the Reagan administration and the Reagan revolution was just moved up a little bit but it was also a little different so that's kind of the the way these little things like Ted Kennedy canceling a party could lead to presidents being different.
0: Yeah, it's it's wild because um, I noticed even in the beginning of season two, it's it's little things like seeing, well, not so little, but seeing Thomas Paine plug in his electric car. I was like, <laughs> wow, that is so cool. And and the sort of um, the email or I guess the email situation, which email didn't become a thing until you know, 10, 15 years later. So just seeing the ways that... I guess, in our world, that something like losing the race to the moon has totally just fast-forwarded technology in so many other ways. I just think that that's incredible.
3: Yeah, because NASA is is a driver of technology. They put so much money into research. And our thinking was if they had really spent the time in the 70s to develop battery technology and the sort of early ARPANET version of the internet and made that a part of their program, it really would have pushed the technology forward where an electric car would have been very possible in the early 80s. So it's fun to see that stuff. I totally agree. Is that your car? You like it?
0: No more gas stations. Just plug it in and get 60 miles on a single charge. You do love your toys. It's not a toy. It's the future.
2: And also I think it's, Great because I think in our normal timeline for us that a lot of people have trouble seeing NASA's purpose. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? They talk about space exploration. They talk about finding, you know, ways to improve our life. But I don't think we often understand what that means. Um, and it's great in the show to actually show some of these things that I think normally you wonder. A lot of people wonder why we're spending so much money on space exploration, and it's nice to be able to show some of those
0: results. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a scene where Clayton's sister, Danielle's sister-in-law says, oh, you know, you're going to head up to figure out if beans will sprout on the moon. And it's these sort of things that like, I think for the layman, they don't know what is the point of going to the moon? What is the point of the International Space Station? What are we really getting out of this? And, and just like you said, seeing ways how this affects life on Earth is incredible. Um, Meryl, I'd like to ask you, how does it affect our characters? I mean, Matt is talking about the sort of science aspect of it, but how does the the 10-year jump and the advancement in technology affect the women and men in our story?
2: Well, certainly for, I mean, all of our characters, they've obviously advanced in some ways in 10 years. I mean, you know, you look at Karen Baldwin, who now owns the Outpost Bar, um, whereas before, when we saw her in the first season, she was more of a, you know, a typical astronaut wife and nothing was wrong with that but I don't think we anticipated that that character would start to on an entrepreneurial path same for your character Danny I mean she has progressed in the space program to a point that you know she's already been up on the moon and now she's looking at her life and and obviously she's done some amazing things and done things ahead of what we see in our normal schedule per our normal timeline. But in the show, she's progressed much farther, but she's still at a point where she's not satisfied. Do you know what I mean? It's not enough for her. And it's interesting to see how, even though the For All Mankind timeline has been advanced, even then, you know, for all our characters, they still want to go farther. Yeah. You know, we're still trying to push farther. And I think for everyone across the board, we could go through everyone, it has changed them in many ways, and we're seeing them at different areas and points in their life.
0: Yeah. Sonia, talk to me about Molly. Where is she at the top of the season two?
1: Well, it's interesting because, you know, Molly's defining feature in season one was her just ambition to get to the moon, and that happened in the most enormous and lauded way where she not only makes it to the first woman on the moon, but she finds water on the moon. So it was really interesting to think about, as I was sort of prepping for season two, what happens when your huge lifelong goal that has been thwarted at every single turn, what happens when that is met? Who are you now? You know, it was sort of a choice I made going into season two was that in some ways, all the defensiveness that has made Molly so prickly and so recognizable throughout season one, um, in some ways that has been dismantled mm. over these intervening 10 years. Mm-hmm. So I definitely made the choice to take some of the edge off Molly because mm. it's not conscious and it's 10 years. And I think all of us, the edges get rubbed off in 10 years. I think also by the age we have Molly at there is a sort of reckoning with who you are and some of the choices that have defined you throughout your youth maybe don't serve you in the same way. So when she's robbed of the opportunity to go back to the moon, but she's still made chief astronaut, she still has that option. She still has agency. And that is something that Molly did not have before. So That was a choice that I made. She's still a spitfire. She still won't take no for an answer. She's still an insubordinate and stubborn and troubled. But there is a piece of Molly that got given to her when she set foot on the moon that wasn't there before.
2: But I think also it's amazing with Molly and a true tragedy that she's one of the few people in the world who identified what she wanted to do. She wasn't able to do it and then finally was. And now that she's finally doing what she wants to do as Sonia said it's taken away from her and what does that do to a person and as you move on when the one thing you want to do in the world you're no longer able to do so I think that's a fascinating and it colors
0: her character as we go on I want to go back back where? Jamestown it has been nine years since I've since any of us have been up there and uh, it's time Meryl, talk to me about the dynamic of our High Bob gang and how they got to be hasbins, and also a bit about Danielle and her headspace and her loss. I mean, when I got those scripts, I just I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Danny was on top. She's as strong as a rock, and and Ed is this high flying guy, and Gordo is this playboy, and now these three are hasbins. Real has-beens at the top of season two.
2: Well, the thing I love about Danielle is talk about a character who em- embodies hope. Um, certainly in season one, she comes in and she's just so full of spirit and energy. And and certainly you, I mean, I think one of the reasons we cast you, obviously, is you embodied that yourself. She had such a spirit to her. and. You know, when we saw her on the moon, she was so excited to be there. And when we catch up with her on season two, she's in a totally different place. She mm-hmm. has just lost her husband, Clayton. She doesn't know where she fits in right now. She's kind of lost. And I think she has been helping and she's helped set up Jamestown to where it is today, but she wants to actually be there. You know, she misses the moon and she's reuniting every few weeks at the outpost with her high bob gang. And she's wondering why they're not feeling the same way. She feels that pull and that tug. And I think it's so interesting that being in a a dark place after Clayton's death is the first one who can admit out loud that she wants to go back. You know, they're all probably feeling that. They're all thinking, you know, the same thing, but they won't admit it to themselves. And I think that shows how courageous Danielle is. And what kind of person she is, you know, the fact that she's willing to put herself out there and say, I don't care that it's been 10 years. I need to go back.
0: Yeah, first of all, I I feel like there are so many aspects of Danielle that were simpatico with me um, that just felt like this is not going to take a whole lot of acting because (laughs) although I may not be an astronaut, I know exactly what it's like to feel like um, you're the only black woman in the room and everyone's watching you and everyone's watching you to get it right. And everyone's watching if you're going to get it wrong. And so I think, you know, we talked about this some last year, but Danielle's sacrifice to break her arm to save Gordo's reputation and to save his career and to truly save his life is such a huge task to take on, not just because it's probably pretty painful to break your arm, but knowing that she is going to be judged so harshly. And so to see that other folks can make mistakes, but that Danny knows that that's a mistake that she may never be forgiven for and still makes that choice anyway, I just think she's so beautifully written.
3: Yeah, we thought. A lot about Danielle at the very beginning of our process writing season two. And for us in the writer's room, I think we define Danielle as someone who is always making quiet sacrifices for others. And so when she does go to Ed in that moment uh, and say, this is not good enough, it's really the first moment we've seen her really stand up for herself and put herself first and say, this is what I want for me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how we viewed her her arc over the whole season is more fully coming into that point of view of putting herself first because sometimes that is the best thing, you know, to put yourself first and to stand up for yourself.
0: And how many astronauts do we have now? Uh,
3: Two hundred
0: and five. And how many of them are black? Eleven. And how many of them have commanded a mission? One. Mm. I hope you're not saying... I hope you're not trying to imply... I'm not trying to imply anything.
1: I'm saying it straight. This is not good enough. That scene with you and Joel had my hairs on my arms standing on Mm. end. You were absolutely mesmerizing in that scene. I was so moved and compelled by you. I I made a note of it to to flag whether you were hosting this podcast or not. I, I wanted to flag... What a beautiful scene that was!
0: Thank you so much. I really, y'all, I'm getting teary over here. I, I mean, I thought this was gonna be a fun hunky dory <laughs> podcast with you guys, and we sit down with the cast and we have a chat. And now I'm I'm just I'm covered in goosebumps. You know, I think that uh, I, I'm not just saying that because you said something nice about me, but um, <laughs> I think that your work with Wayne and I actually have this written down as one of my questions is I want to say, how does Molly do it? You know, in in our world, we're watching four female astronauts who are in very different marital situations, right? We've got Danielle, who is a widow, who has an undying love for for Clayton, but he's passed on. We have Ellen, who's in an arrangement um, that's not a love-romantic relationship. And we have Tracy, who is this sort of celebrity and a husband we've not met, You know, at this point, and we see Molly and her relationship with Wayne, which is just so pure. I mean, one of my favorite scenes of the entire season last year was the two of you in that bathtub. Mm. And it's just like this— I mean, I've been married for a few years now. We've been together for almost 10. And there are times when we're standing there in the shower just talking about our day. And it could look romantic, but we're just two people who love each other. And i passing the soap, and he's got the razor, and we're just there in our element. And, and that familiarity of knowing somebody and loving somebody so much that you share the same bathwater. So how is it possible that Molly is choosing choices that will factually keep her away from Wayne? I mean, she's, she spent more hours on the moon than anybody else in our story.
1: The defining feature of these two is this straight talk. And Wayne knows where he falls in the pecking order when it comes to Molly's work and him. And he's been this loyal bystander. I also felt that, you know, in the years, they've found their rhythm. I mean, she goes to the moon and she's says in that lovely golf scene with with Ed, you know, that's... I feel more at home on the moon than I do down here. here. Here's where feels strange. I don't think that's a secret. I don't think Wayne doesn't know that. I don't think that's, you know, he's he's he paints. He hangs out with Karen. He does his thing. <laughs> like they've got their they've got their separate lives. And I think what happens is she comes back from that mission and she compartmentalizes more than she ever has. Like, I don't think she necessarily comes back and shares the ins and outs of her days at NASA with Wayne. I don't think that's what they have in common. So to not tell him about how badly this mission went has a huge emotional strain Sure. But I doubt in terms of sharing the ins and outs and minutia of her day. I I don't imagine that's what they share anyway. I think she comes home and doesn't want to talk about it. I took shelter in the lava tube right next to base camp. Okay, well, okay. take a look. Uh, Miller, take care of for me, okay? I tried to reach Wobo well, was well, well, calm, but there was no response. And that was when the storm hit. Molly, okay? Give up, give up. Great. I've never seen anything like it. It was like The regolith was boiling. All right, Wubbo, let's see what we can do here, huh? I knew Wubbo was in trouble, but uh, it wasn't safe to proceed with the rescue until the storm was over. So I waited. Two hours, 45 minutes, I waited.
0: Talk to me, Sonia, about that scene with the decision inside the lava tube to go out and save Bobo's life. And, I mean, you're a smart girl. You know exactly what radiation is going to do to you. You don't know that you'll find him upturned and unconscious, but you know that it's not going to be good. So talk to me about that decision of basically putting your life at risk and putting your love at risk for your colleague.
1: Yeah, it sort of goes to the core of who Molly is, which is there's a real chance Wobbo's already dead. I mm. mean, that's, that's, the, that's the big piece, I think, that Molly's weighing up in that moment is, am I going to put my life at risk to find a dead astronaut out there? Mm. But it's the same decision she made going down to look for more water, knowing that the rope was running out, time was running out, everyone's telling her. It's the same Molly. It really is. It's the same person. It's the same DNA in her, if you like, that is... If there is the slightest glimmer of a chance that chooses life, that is what Molly will pursue at all costs. And that was what going after water was, was finding life on the moon. That was what going after Wobba was, was if there is the chance of life. It's that glimmer of a chance that put her on the moon because mm-hmm. the odds were stacked against her. She was, she's the oldest one of the astronauts by far. She's already been knocked down once. That's one of Molly's defining features, I think, is if there is the tiniest gossamer thread of possibility she will pull on it. Uh,
3: I'm so glad that you pointed that out, Sonia, because uh, I totally agree. Like Molly on the surface does not necessarily seem like a hopeful person, but I think Mm. that is everything about her. She keeps striving. There is a hopefulness. And even as we meet her in season two, you know, as she's climbing up this mountaintop to search for new places There's a hope that's driving her there. I'm going to find something at the top of this mountain. So I think in episode two, I love that moment where you hear that Wubbo is giving up Mm -hmm. on the space program because it so shakes Molly's hopefulness. There's still, Mm -hmm. in the the face of potentially losing everything, there is a hope for her that she can figure this out and get back to what she loves doing.
1: I think that was one of the things that I... Found in Molly in season one, when you gave her that beautiful line, I'm going to the moon, as she looks out Hmm. that window, um, it still makes me tear up that line because it gave me such a glimpse into the child that is so alive in Molly. And that is the piece that I look for always when I play her, is where is that? Because that's what I see in my kids is this endless bottomless pit of hope and it gets rubbed out of us and drummed out of us as adults and somehow in Molly it stayed intact but it's what all the ornery layers of her go to protect in me unravelling her for myself was how do I armor up because she knows it's too dangerous to be that childish in the world so she has armoured it up but there is all these tiny opportunities to crack it open and those were the fun ones to look for. And particularly when the prospect of not being able to fly again, it's like if I tell my boy you can't watch, you know, Ninjago again. It's the (laughs) same. It's the same thing. Basically
3: the same.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Talk to me about the physicality of the Wubbo Rescue. I mean, I feel like, you know, such an infant when it comes to filmmaking. Like, I've never worked on a sci-fi show that is so... Technically advanced. I mean, the post production and the, the green screen aspects and all, it's just, it's so beautiful. Did you actually carry the actor? Or were you carrying a dummy? What was that?
1: I carried him by myself for days. No. <laughs> uh, she carried him up and down the hill. I did nothing. I'm barely in the show. My screen credit should entirely go to my stunt doubles. Yeah, wait, that was, was not you at all, son. No, of course it was. No, 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 it wasn't me. Yeah. I did, I did. No, I did a lot. I did a lot, but I didn't do the heavy lifting. I really okay. didn't. That was Sierra, and and she was extraordinary doing it. I I cannot give her enough props or credit for how amazingly she did that, and. I, I literally, I would stand at the side when I was there on set to be there for this stuff. And I would say, can you make it look harder? <laughs> I mean, I really would. I really would because I was like, you, you're a gazelle and Molly is older <laughs> and I would hesitate. So what we did do that was interesting without ruining too much of the magic of Hollywood um, <laughs> was we put a helmet on a stand. So just a freestanding helmet on a stand. And then I ducked in and put my head in so the camera's just on my head so I'm just in my regular clothes but I'm in the helmet and then Michael Morris who was the director for episodes one and two talked me through it so I start carrying what bow, and then it gets heavier and then it gets heavier still and then I'm barely able to make it so we build this performance just inside the helmet but you Sonia are standing still I'm bobbing my head inside it. Wow. Um That is Yeah, cool. so the real heavy stuff was Sierra and our extraordinary stunt crew who figured yeah. out the best way to lift a man, wobbo size and weight, off the ground and wow. then rig him up.
3: One of my favorite moments of visiting set uh, during Block 1 was coming there for that, uh, the the shooting of that sequence. <laughs> And seeing Sonia, uh, just just how much she loved being in that suit every day. She loved it so much. And the smile on her face the whole day. She was just beaming with joy.
0: So for our listeners, (laughs) Matt is smirking his little butt off because Sonia spent, I think, maybe more time in the suit than any of us.
1: I did in season one. I paid my frickin' dues in season one. I really did. Season two suit was, you know, we'd all hoped that because of NASA leaping 10 years forward, we would be in leggings on the moon, but apparently not. (laughs) But it gave us all something that we deeply bonded over, I have to say. Like, you'd look with real sympathy over at people in hair and makeup as they'd come in. Like, man, may the force be with you.
0: (laughs) I want to talk about hope for a second because... And just watching the top of episode one, season two, and we see the line of astronauts all watching the sunrise, and I just cried like a baby. I mean, (laughs) I watched, I'm in the show, I've read the scenes, and I (laughs) still just wept. Um, Matt, I want you to talk to me about the hope and the joy, the childlike playfulness of everyone getting together and singing Every Little Thing is Gonna Be All Right.
3: Yeah, I think that scene really exemplifies what this show is all about, which is just the image of seeing like 10, 12 astronauts on the moon at the same time. It, it's such a an immediate like, "Whoa, that's never happened before." Mm-hmm. But But there's a hopefulness inherent in any sort of exploration where you don't know what you're going to find when you get to the other end, but there's a hope that it's going to be all right. And I think that's kind of the DNA of our show. We very much did not want to do a a dystopian vision of an alternate history where, uh, you know, this one thing changes and everything is much worse. We're telling the story of America losing something and everyone winning because of that loss, basically. Like, this show is kind of a roadmap to a better world on a certain level. Um, Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of heartbreak and difficulty and struggle along the way, but I think we always have that horizon in our minds of moving towards a better future. I think the way season two starts is is all about that. And then you sort of see the, you know, with the militarism and some of the other political things creeping in, it's like almost taking our eyesight off of the hopefulness and the optimism. And it's that struggle in season two between trying to hold on to the hopefulness of the space program or let it be consumed by kind of a more negative and fearful outlook on
1: what the world should be. We cannot hold Site-357 Bravo without armed security. Now, I'm open to new ideas, but it seems to me we really don't have much choice. The only way to hold a piece of ground on this world or any other world is a man with a rifle.
0: The layout of mission control and seeing how the space, which was once just us, just NASA, is now, you know, a two-thirds share with the U.S. military... Talk to me about that because you know I just love that moment when uh, Margot walks into uh, the military section and she sees the the sort of guard standing there and you can see the kind of physicality in her of you know the hackles go up on her. What's that world like? Let's talk about the ways in which the the military wiggled itself into NASA and begins to sort of take over.
3: Yeah, it's um, I love that moment too because it really does present a a big difference and you know the. The roots of the space program were in the Cold War. You know, we were afraid of the Russians getting an advantage, and that's why we put so much effort into getting to the moon first. And so if if that space race kept going, the logical sort of next progression would be to make it a, another arm of the military on a certain level. And it's kind of heartbreaking to see that that's happening and that our characters have to deal with that element of anti-satellite weapons and military space shuttles and things like that. And um, it was really fun to play with. It gave the season a real focus, I thought, uh, and build.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it gave us sort of a common enemy. Ed says that we came for all mankind. We came in the name of science. We came in the name of discovery and of a new frontier. And here is this silent, extraordinary, intact Area of the world of the of the universe that that is suddenly just sullied by footprints. It summed it up for me. It was like, take your trash off my moon. (laughs) Like I I felt (laughs) I felt like Molly, and I felt for humanity, I just felt like this is not a military base. Mm -hmm. This is not a military base. It really did. It was it was interesting and it was so visual. For something that had felt very intellectual on the page in the read throughs. And mm. it, it was a visceral response to it, seeing it up there, which is, means you did your job, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. There was one bit in season one where Danny and uh, Ed are in the airlock. And he says, they're on our side of the crater. <laughs> and, um, and he says, you know, yeah. we're the settlers. And then I say, well, you know, ask the Indians. Um, but the point <laughs> being that, uh, that along the way, just like you said, Son, that they have turned this beautiful part of the universe into now a pissing contest, um, which is truly heartbreaking. Okay, Meryl, so talk to me about both the casting process for how you found the incredible Sonia Walger and, I don't know, how you found me. I mean, let's get into it.
2: It's so funny because I was talking to Matt about this in anticipation of this, you know, just starting with you, Chris. we were. Um, he was reminding me that, honestly, with everyone, we had a hard time. I mean, I know you always say that, but um, I'm not sure there was anyone that we cast that was, we found them immediately. You know, Matt was reminding me that we couldn't find... A Danny and you actually went into Junie and Libby's office, who are our casting directors, our amazing casting directors, and were auditioning for something else. Mm-hmm. And because we had trouble finding someone, they suggested you
0: audition for From Mankind while you were there. Is that true? That is true. So I was there for a sitcom about lesbians in their 20s. And so I was wearing a sundress and Reebok classics and had my hair up in a ponytail. And as I was heading out to the parking lot, I just finished the audition, they said, hey, can you stop for a second and read this thing about NASA? And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, I barely graduated high school. And so I I looked it over for, I don't know, eight minutes, and a lot of it was some technical jargon that I had to quickly Google how to pronounce. (laughs) But what I did see was just a woman with heart. And I said, you know what? I am not the smartest girl, and and I don't know much about science, but I do know about heart. Um, Let me just take a stab at this and um, lean into that. And so I came back in and I did the scene. I did the scene with the sides of my hand. And that was on a Monday. And then the next morning they called and said I had the job. And the day after that, I had a costume fitting. And on Thursday I was on set and I was shaking like a little leaf. I mean, talk about big time imposter syndrome. <laughs> Just like, when are they going to find me out? When are they going to realize that I'm not the girl? When are they going to send me home? And it's funny because... You know, I think Danielle very much felt like, how did I end up here? You know, even though she is totally competent and an incredible pilot, I think all throughout the top of season one, she's trying to find her sea legs and figure out where does she belong in this world. And I, Chris, very much felt like, I love this place and I'm excited to be here and I want to show up early and leave late, but also feeling like I was, you know, in over my head and, and having to sort of learn on the job. That's what I mean when I say that that Danny and I were very much uh, simpatico in that experience. And it wasn't until, until I did a high Bob episode, which in our story, we jump a few years between, um, what is it, between episodes five and six, I think mm-hmm. it was. That's right. And then I made the conscious choice of I want to cut her hair. I want to make a change. I want Danny to feel more like she is um, at home with these guys. And at that point, I felt very much at home with Michael and Joel. And so it just... You know, it kind of flowed. Talk to me about how we found Sonia, because I know that Sonia was a last-minute ad as well, right?
2: Molly was literally the hardest character in cast, because Mm. she's such a unique character. She's tough as nails, but as Sonia had kind of alluded to earlier, there is a vulnerability to Molly that has to come out, and she has such a tough exterior, but she's quite soft underneath, and, and she is vulnerable. She's been through so much. She's had so many desires that have been squashed down and she's protecting herself. And, you know, we see so many tremendous actors and actresses, but we just could not find the person I think we had in our minds. But I do think our casting directors mentioned Sonia and we'd all been familiar with her work, but as soon as her name was mentioned, we were like, Yes, uh, it was like the kind of sun came out and it was like, oh <laughs> and then we um had her come in and audition and it was exactly what we'd imagined because it was so she was both in your face but once again you could tell there was a little bit of hurt underneath the surface of mm. years of being having your dreams squashed down and and Sonia just killed it. I mean I think and Matt, maybe you could jump in, but there was not even a question after weeks of not of being disappointed we couldn't find this person. Everyone across the board was like, yes.
3: It was one of the the great moments to me of the first part of this process of putting the show up was going through the frustration of not being able to find the right Molly Cobb. And at a certain point, as we were getting closer to starting to shoot uh, that second block of episodes three and four wrapping my mind around, well, maybe we're just going to have to settle for a pretty good Molly Cobb, not the perfect Molly Cobb. And then I remember sitting in our office with all of us and Alan Coulter, the director, and seeing Sonya's audition. And we all just looked at each other. We didn't even need to say anything. We were all just like, oh, there she is. Mm -hmm. It was was such a great moment. It was really special.
0: I love that.
2: It is true that I think a lot of times in the casting process, you come to a point because you run out of time when you do feel like, uh, you're going to have to settle. And it's still, you know, there's, once again, so many great actors out there. But it's such a relief and such a satisfying moment when you find someone that's exactly what you imagine. But the casting process in general is very awkward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I often think, I often, I feel so bad for actors. You know, the times we sit in there and people come in for callbacks, it's incredibly awkward for us. I know I, I God bless you guys because you really
0: put yourselves out there. Mm. And on that note, I want to talk about the rose and the thorns, and I want to go around the room. Matt, what's your rose? What's your thorn?
3: I've never heard that concept before, but I love that idea. Um, I watch
0: a lot of The Bachelor.
3: So <laughs> I see it's a
1: bachelor. <laughs> reference. Is it is it a bachelor reference? No, I ask my kids. I'm my kids. We talk every day at the uh, at dinner. We uh, we go around the table and ask my kids what's the rose of your day and what was your thorn. So I'm quite used to this.
3: Oh, that's great. Um, that's a really good question. I would say my rose is the process of breaking the stories with our writers and really because mm-hmm. it's such an open space and, you know, the the experience of exploring all these characters and trying to find the right way. It can be frustrating, but it's really gratifying when you have a run and everybody's chiming in and uh, and you just get this momentum. And my thorn is actually having to write the stinking scripts because I it's like <laughs> we talk about how much we love writing except when we're writing it's the it's the most arduous <laughs> process that I just want to bang my head against the desk the for the two <laughs> weeks it takes to write the scripts it's awful but then at the end you have this script that you're like well that, what that, I guess, I guess that turned out all right I mean you know and and then you start to kind of get out of the the darkness of the, of the writing frame of mind and and then my second rose is uh getting to collaborate with everybody is just so special. After the writing process, getting to figure out with you guys, with the director, with our amazing crew. We have the best crew in Mm -hmm. the industry. I think just everybody adds so much. Uh And that's why the episodes I think really stand out is that there's so much love put into it uh, by everybody. So. Um, Meryl, in the whole process
0: of making a TV show, what's your rose? What's your thorn?
2: You know, it's funny, casting for me is maybe both a rose and a thorn because it's a grueling process. You feel bad because there's so many people putting themselves on the line and and for them, it's everything. And you're seeing so many people and you're going through and sometimes you feel like you don't give someone enough of a chance. But to find someone is so satisfying at the end. So my thorn is, God, I don't even... uh, Yeah, I'm going to go with that. But I will say my extra rose, if I can, is talking about story with the writers. I'm not a writer myself, but I do so enjoy hearing the process and what they do. And it's so hard, and I think sometimes they are the unsung heroes sometimes of these shows that people don't realize how hard it is to put pen to paper and come up with some of this stuff that at the end is so rewarding and certainly on this show so satisfying.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Sonia, you're up. It's funny, when you ask this question— an image really floated to mind, which was me at the top of a, what was it, 60-foot styrofoam crater that you guys (laughs) built. And I was sitting on what felt like a bicycle seat at the top of a crane. And I looked down and there is this entire world of people below me, every single one of whom is working to keep me on that thing to keep the camera in position an enormous crane an enormous rig of lighting rig and it just felt like it felt like a sort of true Molly Cobb moment too of just looking down and being like holy moly look at what I get to do look at what my job is like this is truly a privilege I I am not clacking heels carrying a briefcase (laughs) there are so so many crappy versions of our job, and I've been in a few of them, and and this is not that. I play someone who literally answers to no man. I play nobody's wife. I am not defined by that role as Molly. I happen to be Lenny's wife, but that's not how I describe the role. I'm nobody's secretary. I'm nobody's girlfriend. I'm nobody's boss. There is... There is something incredibly emancipating about playing this woman in this world with this huge ballpark that I get to play in. Uh, So it's going to sound tacky, but I really mean it. Playing Molly Cobb Mm. has been the rose. It is such a highlight of my career to play her. And as a side note, and this is a sort of awkward thing to admit, but it is true. It's wonderful playing someone who isn't beautiful. It really is. And the thorn is the suit, as discussed. As, is, as is <laughs> discussed.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. Say goodbye, guys. Bye. Thank Bye you. Thanks, Chris. Great. Thank you, guys. <laughs> In the next episode, we're going back to school. Astronaut school. We'll talk to former NASA astronauts about what they had to go through to become spaceflight ready. From breaking the sound barrier in a T-38 jet to trying on spacesuits in a swimming pool. This is Chris Marshall, safe and sound Earthside. Thanks for listening to the For All Mankind podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed and watch For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast and an At Will Media production. Executive produced by Will Melnatti, Produced by Chris Marshall, Ashley Taylor, Patrick Farrell, and associate producer Dominique Ibeque. Production coordination by Latavia Young. Sound editing by the At Will Media team. Sound designed and mixed by 1,000 birds.